This is Jeff Benjamin with Investment News and the Investment News Podcast, along with my colleague Bruce Kelly. How you doing today, Bruce? I'm fine and dandy, Jefferson. Great to hear from you again. I know we're both working remotely, haven't seen each other in person in months and months, but you still sound amazing. I don't miss it. <laughs> uh, yes, you do. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> Bruce, what's on tap for our first segment today? We got a full book. So uh, what are we starting off with? Uh, yeah, it's interesting how these weeks in the summertime where, uh, you know, we publish an issue of the newspaper every other week. We're still pretty busy, though. Right. Oh, yeah. There's still a ton of news. I know you were covering you had a big uh, press conference you were covering there with Hightower and Carson Group and the like. And you're going to mention that later, probably. And then I've been working on a cover story uh, regarding Morgan Stanley and what it's going to do with E-Trade's custody business. Uh, We talked a little bit about that on the last episode. We'll talk about that more. That's right. But something really popped that was interesting. Business Insider, which everybody knows picked up a good little story from On Wall Street, one of our trade publication competitors, basically that said that Merrill Lynch had told 3,000 advisors who are trainees at the end of uh, July to pull back and essentially stop doing new business. Hmm. Uh, That means getting new (laughs) clients and prospecting and the like. The reason for this is kind of vague. The business insider story didn't have details about what exactly was happening. And then when I was speaking to some people over at Merrill Lynch earlier today, they wouldn't exactly say to me what was happening. But uh, it seems like just reading through between the lines of everything that these 3,000 young advisors were all working from home, like everybody's been working from home since March. And when working from home, you don't have the kind of direct supervision that these people do in a big branch office. And, you know, they were making uh, mistakes or improperly cold calling people, right? Yeah. So, (laughs) and Merrill Lynch, and I'll get to this in a minute, Merrill Lynch had run into some problems with a state regulator about this recently too. So, you know, it's, it's brokers doing what brokers do or advisors doing what advisors do. The industry doesn't like to, acknowledge it, but it's a sales business, mm-hmm. right? Because they, you can't, how do you prospect these days? Well, you have a Merrill Lynch and Bank of America, you have a nice uh, reception at your office, or you have a, a dinner somewhere, or you have a golf event or something like that. Well, you can't do that anymore, right? Right. So it sounds like these young advisors being aggressive, they have sales targets, right, that they have to hit uh, to remain as a trainee. They're being very aggressive and they violated some company policy. Merrill Lynch won't say what exactly, um, but it sure sounds like they were cold calling people and crossing a line somehow. Mm -hmm. So the Business Insider story didn't have exact details, but it sure sounded like mistakes around um, cold calling. So Merrill Lynch has put a pause essentially on its advisors, trainees, abilities to contact uh, potential clients. And this happened at the end of July. And uh, this is all coming while uh, everyone's stuck at home, as Business Insider acknowledged. Now, Merrill Lynch is, what they told me, was that they're putting um, new technology to track and trace these calls, because all calls have to be recorded. So they're kind of putting a pause on this 
to make sure that everyone understands how to use the technology. <laughs> mm. So well, that's good. It's an old fashioned. <laughs> it's an old fashioned problem, right? It sounds like people, the new advisors, the three thousand trainees, were just being too aggressive. Now, as Business Insider acknowledged. In 2015, Merrill paid $400,000 as a part of a settlement with New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Bureau of Securities over allegation it improperly tried to solicit people by contacting them on these do not call lists. So even though it sounds antiquated, you know, cold calling rears its head in the era of COVID. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. I mean, it, to me, it seems like a recipe for disaster. You got a bunch of new three thousand uh, people, Jeff. trainees, three thousand, and working from home, <laughs> and all they get is probably these giant phone books and say, "Start with you know, Able Apple and work your way down." And um, <laughs> well, you can't go to go- you can't you can't go to golf and prospect, right? You can't go to your kid's school uh, basketball game, right? And prospect. Right. You can't go have dinner with people and prospect. And, you know, what they're doing is a is a valuable service. They're trying to get people. But there's right ways to do it and there's wrong ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's an aggressive sales. Yes. Uh, Culture. Environment. Yeah. Any way you slice it. Yeah. Even if it's uh, even if things are open and we're not in lockdown mode. And these are the the front lines of that aggressive attack. And you know, I don't know. I, I <clears throat> I'm happy to hear that they've they've dialed it back. At least that's probably going to be a few less phone calls that I'm going to get <laughs> in the middle of the day. <laughs> Somebody trying to <laughs> get me to invest in platinum. I'm not going to fall for that trick again. No. <laughs> or gold plated coins. I, I got way too much platinum. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it's a it's a mess. I I can't believe it. Where I I am going to assume that there's some of this uh, across the board in the wirehouse channels. I, I you know Merrill can't be just unique in this regard of having a bunch of trainees working from home and kind of you know being a little bit adrift. The thing that the thing one of the thing you know Merrill's a fascinating company, fascinating organization. One of the things that has that it has done for a really long time better than anyone else really is train people, right? It's spent, it's dedicated mm-hmm. uh, the most, re- the most money, the most people, the most resources to training. And it does more training than Morgan Stanley. It does more training than UBS. Uh, Wells Fargo does training, but a lot of that is related to the bank, you know, yep. and working in a bank branch as a potential and then potentially becoming an advisor from there. So Merrill Lynch, because of their Merrill Edge program, which is the online, you know, self-service type of brokerage and having higher account minimums, you really have to have a million bucks, you know, as a client to to work with a Merrill Lynch advisor. You know, they have a fertile training ground. And so it seems like these people need to be put in check a little bit. Um, And that leads us to my the next thing I wanted to talk about. And I mentioned this to you earlier. Uh It's just and I want to pick your brain on this one a little bit. In doing this story about Morgan Stanley and what's going to happen to the the custody business over at uh, E-Trade, the old trust company of America business with roughly 220 advisors or so, in my conversations with some of these E-Trade advisors, they really bring up the fiduciary responsibility they have to their clients and any conflict of interest that the purchase by Morgan Stanley might create for them. 
if they're owned by Morgan Stanley, uh-huh. will Morgan Stanley put their banking products or their credit cards or whatever on the top shelf for them to use? I would you think know? they would. Well, that's why these organizations, that's why these big companies buy other companies, right? Exactly. Um, it's distribution. Yeah. So, you know, I've been writing about the brokerage business for the majority of my time here at Investment News, which is like you, it's, it's two decades. And the way that these advisors take the notion of a conflict of interest and what that means to how they conduct themselves and putting their clients' best interests first is so far ahead of a typical meat and potatoes broker at any firm that you could list mm-hmm. who really, you know, just wants to sell mainstream type of mutual funds and then collect some more juice on a, on the commission for selling a, a non-traded read or a private placement and double your commission. Yep. So, so when people in the industry discuss Reg BI or the Department of Labor Fiduciary Rule or the difference between an advisor and a broker, I mean, it's really clear. The advisor, the registered investment advisor standard of do no harm, some of these guys really internalize it. While like we we, we just talked about Merrill Lynch, right? Mm-hmm. They're having to rein in their, their 3,000 young trainees because those guys, it sounds like, have been too aggressive selling yep. stuff or prospecting uh-huh. for new clients. The, the difference couldn't be any more stark, I think. And I just wanted to get your your reaction to that. In in regard to these In regards to your experience in just talking to people over the years. Like you said, you you have always focused more on the warehouse channels and the brokers. Yeah. And to me, it has always felt that way from my perspective, that it's a sales culture right. versus uh, more of a, a service culture on the RIA. Or, more against an advice culture. Right. I know that they, on the broker's side, they want it to, to look and feel like one thing. Um, to the public, but you've got hardcore dyed-in-the-wool RIAs that are staunchly pressing uh, for that that clear separation until they get the regulations that they want, which are the same regulations for both brokers and advisors. Never going to happen. It's it's never going to never going to happen. But the industry is still moving toward the independent channel, so maybe the markets will force it. But um, the, the but big it, the big it's, firms it's, make so much money on commissions mm-hmm. that it would be inconceivable yeah. uh, for them to do away with trading and commissions and the like and trade it all and, and, and turn it all in for fees. Right. But this that's the bigger question of, you know, we know fee compression is going everywhere and everybody's got free ETF trading now. So, I mean, commissions have got to be the, the thing that's getting squeezed the most. But I also want to say we're talking about this separation as if RIAs are, you know, kind of walking on water. And, you know, there are RIAs that are dual registered and and sell commission-based products, and that doesn't necessarily make them bad. I mean, sometimes those commission-based products are insurance products that people need. And as you and I both know, Bruce, we get uh, announcements from FINRA and the SEC daily of – all kinds of people from all different channels getting in all kinds of trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because you're an RIA, you're not perfect because you're an RIA, but it's a different fee model. And that's where they always stand behind, the the asset-based right. pricing model, which is something in a future episode I'd love for you and I to just really pick apart because 
there are no perfect fee models. I don't, I don't care what the industry says. Um, some say if you're hourly, if you're a retainer, if you're based on a client's assets or a client's net worth or a client's income, they're all conflicted. You know, it's it's just impossible to not be somewhat conflicted. I don't care what they say. You're providing these people advice on their most important life decisions, financial decisions, and you're getting paid for that. Look, I'm not saying that, you know, advisors who are, you know, were, were registered with FINRA or work at a LPL or Merrill Lynch or anything are any less ethical, right, than RIAs. By no means. There, there is a lot of, of course, it comes down to the individual but it also does come down to the system as well, because mm-hmm. the system of working and also the circumstance, E-Trade bought Trust Company of America. So these guys were working at a trust institution as well. Right. So that even adds a layer, I think. But these guys that I'd sp- I've spoken to over the past week, these advisors have really in- internalized this sense of being a fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Where I think for a lot of pe- for many people on the brokerage side, it's just paperwork, and and that really struck me, and that's why I wanted to raise the topic. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, just like they're all RIAs are not angels. All brokers selling based on commissions are not bad people or doing a bad thing. They're they're doing a service, and clearly people want that. I like the commission model. You know, people the commission have a model as to me makes perfect sense. You know, so. There you have it. That's there's a market for it, and that's why it's there. And uh, let you know, let both sides or all the sides fight about the the, the fee structures and the regulatory oversight. Jeff, you're going to talk about a topic that includes one of my favorite words when it comes to financial services products mm-hmm. in it, and that's buffered. I just love things that are buffered. Buffered. <laughs> and my good friend yeah. and former colleague Greg Iacursi and I would have many a lengthy discussion about buffered annuities and have some laughs about that. But you're talking not about buffered annuities today, but something else that's buffered. Yeah. I love buffered it. Buffered ETFs, buffered exchange traded funds. There aren't a lot of them out there, but the model is uh, is old. It's been around. Um, what does that mean, a buffered ETF? For well, in, a, in, in, the con- in the vernacular of ETFs, it means it puts uh, some basically some bumpers on. Like, you know, when you go play pool or bowling, Bruce, and they always put the bumpers up for you because you're not that good. I love them. Yeah. They, uh, that's what these ETFs do. They, so they limit your downside, but the the downside of that downside protection is that they limit your upside. Right. So nothing is free out there. As our colleague Mary Beth Franklin likes to remind me, insurance is expensive. Exactly. That's that's the so best. So are these things more expensive or, or what? Well, well, first of all, that's the best way to think about this as as insurance. Right. And whenever you're buying insurance, in my experience, the uh, the house always has the advantage. All right. It always it's always written in favor of the underwriter. So know that you're you're getting something, but you're paying for it. First of all, the buffered ETFs are more expensive by far. I mean, ETFs in general are cheap. So when you see one for 79 or 80 basis points, that seems like a fortune for something sure that does, is man. tracking the S&P 500 Ooh. when you can get the S&P 500 for for two bips, you know, five, five basis bips. points. Yeah, you can. Oh. It's 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 dirt cheap compared 80 to 80 basis points. <clears throat> yep. 
But but Goodness but this is how it me. works. I mean, if these products keep investors from selling out when things are scary and heading to the hills, then they do serve that purpose. Right. But you need to know uh, you're getting you're giving up upside performance. You're giving up. You're paying higher fees. And these things are structured in a way that you need to be careful when you buy them, even because these things are structured. They're they're. Give me a for instance. What do you mean? Well, the engine they're engineered to provide downside protection to and right. these can change from, you know, from product to product. But let's say you've got a fund that sa- it says uh, we're going to limit your downside losses to 10 percent. Anything beyond 10 percent, they'll absorb it. The fund will absorb it. OK. And but we're going to cap your upside and I'm oversimplifying, but we're going to cap your upside at 10 percent. But that's but these things are issued every month because they have to be written and created based on the options engineering that they use underneath oh. them because these things buy right. options to be able to to be able to offer these these so there's, uh, they're they're similar to structured products then right they're exactly they're almost identical to structured products except structured products are usually written by the banks, banks yeah. so you have credit risk there with these you don't have credit risk oh okay because the structured products anyway, really so, you know they. <laughs> were a catastrophe in the in our right. last crisis, you know, and what happened to the market in between two thousand eight and two thousand nine. Right, but they're they are still around. Structured products yes. are still around. They're different. They got longer uh, hold periods, and they they cost more money, and they usually have higher minimums. These are ETFs, so they're kind of thinking of them as as retail as it gets when it comes to buffered products. But what my point is, these things are offered every month. Okay, uh, any company that offers them, there's only like five. ETF sponsors that offer them, but they 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 come out every single month with a new ticker symbol for that month and that year, and then they expire twelve months later. But if you if one comes out on August first and it says we're going to give you ten percent downside protection and ten percent cap on your upside, if you buy that thing on September first or August fifteenth, when the fund is already down ten percent, your downside protection just got cut to five percent. Because it's only going to down, the 10% downside protection from where it was on the day it was issued. Same thing for upside. If this thing gains 5% before you buy it, your cap just went from 10% to 5%. So whatever it makes after that. So are these things for advisors who have financial plan, long-term you know, investors, financial planning clients, or are they for advisors who are running their own book and trading every month? Well- they're for advisors that are building portfolios for their right. clients and for it's really something for advisors who have clients that are skittish and especially in times like this. But the thing to keep in mind, if this is the only way you can keep somebody invested in the market, as opposed to just selling at the bottom or something like that, if you if you think you have a client that's going to do that, then yeah, they'll do it. Then serve it serves that purpose. But otherwise if somebody has the time to ride out some market volatility, just leave these things alone. And if they don't have the time, maybe they shouldn't be invested in yeah. you know, the S&P 500 anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that I would invest in, um, but I do see a market for them. It's obviously not a big market or there would be a lot more of these things. And when people get to ETFs, they don't like to pay 80 basis points. That's a mutual fund right. fee right there, basically. But they're they're getting creative. They're getting more creative. There's this one from True Market Investments that I wrote about this week that instead of capping the upside at 
10 or 8 or 15%, what they're doing is they're giving you 80% of whatever the upside is. So this thing can climb to the sky and you're you're not capped. You're still getting right. 80%. Right. But people don't usually buy these things because they're worried about you know the market taking off. They usually buy these things because they're worried about the market falling apart. Right. So like I said, just keep in mind that these things are like insurance products, so they're expensive. And... They're written in favor of the underwriter. Um, if if somebody's a long-term investor and they're just going to invest in the S&P 500 and they're, they want to start putting caps on these things, just keep in mind the stock market has an upward bias. I mean, over the long term, it it goes up. Jeff, you've been on some calls. Uh, I think you had a big conference call with some, uh, some of the big RA uh, acquiring groups. You've also been writing about a, a Canadian. Yeah or Canadian backer of, of RIA yep. as a consolidator. What's going on with RIA consolidation? We talk about it all the time. It just keeps on rolling yeah. along, right? It's crazy. Uh, conversations I had this week, one with this uh, this uh, brand new CEO at this company, uh, Toronto-based CI Financial. Oh, sure. It's a giant firm. They This week, they announced the planned acquisition of a $4.5 billion RIA, Illinois-based, and it is going to be the fifth acquisition of a U.S.-based RIA for this Canadian firm this year. Boy, what a time to be an owner of one of these businesses, right? Of one of these independent yeah, of RIAs. These, well, you could just name your price practically, it seems, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, they don't they don't like the, – the buyers don't like to talk about it that way, <laughs> but they're shopping like crazy. The consolidators are – you know, maybe it is that. I mean – you know, you always every time it's you a talk gold to rush. It's, a, it's like a gold rush, Jeff. I mean, it's there's so much capital, right? These private equity yeah. funds that are backing so many of these these roll ups, these acquirers, they have so much money to invest. It's just a way. It, even through the pandemic, this thing has kept up at a white hot type of pace, which I I just find unbelievable. Well, it, it actually came to a, a, a it slowed down, yeah, but it's grinding right back up man. in 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 April and May. Yeah, but it's back now where people are thinking the second half of the year is going to beat the second half of last year, and last year was a right. record for M and A activity. And but it's, I mean, I was talking to the guy that own, uh, is the CEO. He's a new CEO of uh, CI Financial. He came on board in September with a mandate to make acquisitions, and and he said in Canada. The financial services industry is owned by the banks and the insurance companies. So if you want to grow through acquisitions, you either got the U.S. or you got Europe. And he said Europe with the, you know, the currencies and the time zones and the languages, he goes, it just makes U.S. is just a much easier deal when you're a Canadian company. And he said, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg for them. That's what they I mean. See so much opportunity here, and that kind of gets in. They're sitting on so much capital. Right. They got to. They got to use into it. The, you know, that's the guy's job is to is to buy RIAs. Well, because they see these RIAs as just these cash cows. Yeah, they're charging a a fee based price. The RIAs they want to sell because they know the competition is getting more fierce, and they realize the benefits of scale. They get scale. They get marketing help. They get technology they didn't have or didn't know how to use. And also, they see something like what happened this year when the market dropped by 30% in a period of four weeks. And a lot of them sat there and said, oh, my gosh, did I miss my opportunity? Because the buyers will tell you it's based on all kinds of different things, and it is. But 
a big part of the valuation of an RAA firm is what you got under management. Oh, yeah. And if your assets under management drops by 30%, your price just went down. So we all know the RAA space, financial advisors are getting older. The average age or is yeah, keeps 59 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So um, these guys want to you know, cash out at some point, whether or not, whether they're going to leave altogether or just stay on board under a new owner or something like that. But I mean, the business is, it's just, you wouldn't think that this, cause this is, you know, you're buying somebody's personal business that they started themselves 30 years ago or something like that. And they're doing these deals without even meeting face to face anymore. I mean, yeah, it's fascinating. You, you got Ron Carson over at Carson group. He said, you know, they got 15 deals in the pipeline, which is more than they had in the fourth quarter of last year when nobody had even heard of coronavirus yet. Right, right. Um, you know, the same thing over at Hightower. They brought in Bob Oros last year, or the beginning of 2019, right. really with a, another a mandate to grow. And they've done five deals since March. I mean, yeah. that's the in the thick of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, Grant, when I say they've done them, I, I mean, they've announced five deals. They, they've announced them. When yeah. they get to the point they of take an, several months yeah. to complete. So yeah. they take they take several months to get to the point of announcement, too. Yeah. So but that's the way our industry is counting M&A. When it's announced, it's counted. Yes. Because it usually closes, a, you know, a few months after that, unless it's a Schwab TD deal or something like that. But for RAAs, there's the time building up to the courtship period and then the announcement and then the closing. But the, the guys on the, the call yesterday with uh, it was uh, Ron Carson of the Carson Group and Bob Oros of, of Hightower and Peter Malouk of Creative Planning. These guys were saying that they see. Well, those are some big hitters right yeah, there. But and I asked about, you know, when do we see the consolidators start to consolidate? You know, they were they kind of, you know, sort of agreed on. We're looking at a future of maybe you know, between a half a dozen and a dozen massive players in this space. And then, you know, there'll be, that's going to happen. There'll be some, yep. there'll still be some independents out there. And they said there's still more RIAs being created every year than are being folded in because that's back to the, you know, they're leaving the wirehouse, these breakaways creating their own RIAs and stuff like that. So yep. it's, you know, we're a long way from, you know, kind of tightening up this very, very, very fragmented industry of independent RIAs. And, the thing about fragmented, I yeah, I, but I they can do s- these deals so quickly now. It's so different than it was ten or fifteen years ago, right? Uh, I when guess the I mean, consolidators really started. That's that's when you know Hightower. I remember when Hightower launched and right. United Planners and all this these types of businesses. That was mid to late two thousands, and then you had the private equity money buy mm-hmm. start to take an interest and. In, in the space, first they went to the broker dealers. The the first big deal was two thousand five with LPL when when TPG and Hellman and Friedman bought LPL mm-hmm. and the like. You know, so they have the from my reporting the private equity guys. They know the players. They've been in this space for over a decade now. They've had seen a lot of success. These businesses, as you say, are kicking off a lot of ca- free cash flow, which is what is what private equity wants this type of private equity buyer wants mm-hmm. they have really good margins and they're fee machines they know how to do these deals so i think the pace yeah. of the deals is only going to intensify and quicken and then we're back to a zero interest rate environment right so yeah go out and borrow some money 
Right. I mean, and it's remember, it's, it's deals on top of deals. The deals yes. get bigger. And then like in the case of uh, CI Financial, they've done they bought five U.S. RIAs this year. They bought two Canadian RIAs this year and three of CI Financial's U.S. firms have bought RIAs this year. So there were what they call sub acquisitions. So, I mean, it's I mean, a, you it's have a, just ba- I don't know this for certain. This is just conjecture. But you have guys out there in the investment banks beating the bushes, scouring the countryside for target acquisitions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have 20,000 RIAs. Um, yeah. You have a 20% growth per year, 15 to 20% growth in that number every year, you know? Yeah. You have, <laughs> you know, there's people out there, you know, investment bankers and the like, just scouring the countryside, looking for targets, looking for these things. Yeah, and they and the RIAs are listing. Yeah, you know everybody is always excited to talk about the deal that they just made or yes. how they sold their firm. Anyway, it's it's there's no end in sight to this. There's no. plenty of uh, buying to go around. The private equity money is just pouring into the space, and uh, the big buyers just keep sitting back and gobbling them up and folding it all in. And hopefully, it's it's better for the consumer. They're getting a, a bigger, better firm behind them and still represented by a independent fee-based RIA, I'm hoping. Jeff, it's time to talk about our reporter's notebook for the week. Yes. And you keep bringing up these great topics uh, because you're such a bright, fine, young gentleman. You, you just mentioned something in, in when we were talking earlier this week about getting people on the phone right and getting access to senior executives at companies that maybe mm-hmm. before the pandemic wouldn't have happened so easily yeah it is amazing i mean i was just even referencing the the conversation or the it was a webinar yesterday with ron carson bob oros and uh peter maluk these are three guys that i can't imagine ever being together on the same webinar no way pre covid um, I can't even maybe being, at a conference yeah, on the say, stage, right? Maybe, where they, but it where would have taken have, months, right? Is yeah. there anything? But there would have been egos involved, and who's sitting where, and what type of bottled water does so and so prefer, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Because these three guys are like they're as close to rock stars as we're going to get in the financial advice industry, right? Those types of guys, right? My point is, you, you know, these guys. They're there. They're on the phone for it's a lot of time, you know, seventy-five minutes or something like that. And and I mean, earlier in the week, I talked to Bob Oros on the yeah. phone, and you know, he's always a pretty open and accessible yeah. guy. But he's the CEO of Hightower. I mean, these guys are available now. The the one guy I was talking to from Canada, from uh, CI Macklepine is his is his last name. Yeah, from CI, and he he told me that. You know, he's doing more deals now because he has more time. He says, I'm not flying to conferences. I'm not I'm not even commuting to work. He said, I'm not doing dinners or breakfast meetings or anything. I just have more time. So when these people have more time, guys like you and me, we might get on their list of potential phone calls, but we'd be, you know, kind of far down. We might still be far down, but they have the time now. I mean, I, I can't get over how much access I yeah, have. Yeah, I got on the like phone. I called up just out of the blue now. the head of a small RIA custodian this week um, that is talking to some of these E-Trade advisors. 
to, to try to pry them off their platform. And, yep. um, you know, that'll all be in the article that's coming up in, mm-hmm. a, in a week or two. And and I just got him on. I called his PR person. I've never yeah, spoken to the guy I'm before. looking forward to getting some of these. I, I called his PR person from the website. And uh, the guy called me back in like 10 minutes. You know, mm-hmm. that that just never happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I think some of our readers, you know, when I go to when we used to go to conferences. And well, talk I'm to looking people, forward to getting some of they these. They would think that, you know. Someone like you or I, we do have these direct connections to, you know, the Dan Arnold, the the, the CEO of LPL or Paul Riley, the, the CEO of Raymond James. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all this inside knowledge or something. And I say, I say, no, I don't have any inside knowledge. I just scour all the public information, you know, available and talk to people about it, you know, and put it together for mm-hmm. the readers. You know, I don't have a pipeline to anybody, but, you know. It's a certainly part. It's part of the pandemic, definitely. Yep, it's more access and better access, and uh, even advisors, independent advisors, are more available than in the past because everybody's got more time. Um, I also like to take when I call up people. You know, I like to take just a few minutes to kind of speak to them and just kind of check in. What's going on in Virginia with the pandemic? What's going on in Missouri? What's going on in Chicago? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And and kind of yeah. catch up with people. It's nice because they're not traveling. They're not frantic. Uh, they're not doing an arduous commute, you know, mm-hmm. into Washington or into New York or into Atlanta. You can take five or 10 minutes on the phone and just kind of catch up. And I say to people, this is just between you and me. This isn't anything. You know, this is I'm not going to write any of this. But just how are people dealing with the pandemic where you are? Yeah. You know, and, and all that kind of stuff. How are your kids? That To me, that's kind of a that's kind of a nice thing about all this too hey jeff that was a great podcast yes covered a lot of good stuff there so if it's monday it's time for yet another brand new investment news podcast we like to call it the investment news podcast and jeff you know where you can find that yep you can find it at investmentnews.com you can find it on apple You can find it on Spotify. That's where I listen to it. Google Play and Stitcher. Um, We're always looking for some feedback. You can give us a review uh, or just a comment or two. You can send it to us over Twitter. Jefferson Benjamin, his Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm Bruce Kelly, and my Twitter handle is at BD News Guy. We want to send thanks out to our producer, Stephen Lamb the golden boy um, (laughs) and we'll be talking to you next week.